Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now called downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall, and since March 16th, all live performing arts centres, galleries, rehearsal and dance studios have been closed. Only recently, some galleries have been allowed to reopen and classes have resumed in some dance and art studios. But within the performing arts sector, theatres remain closed, which has indeed created a long, long dramatic pause, which is affecting the livelihoods of countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs, and in turn affecting the lives of countless audience members and patrons who enjoy and believe strongly in the value of the live performing arts. During this period, I've been having conversations with artists and arts makers about how our city, our country, and indeed the world is being changed by the pandemic. Today's guest on Dramatic Pause is actor, playwright, director, colleague, advocate, and all-round fabulous person, Omari Newton, who is zooming in for this conversation. Omari co-directed and starred in Speakeasy's production, The Shipment, last fall here at the Fire Hall and prior to that at the Cultures Culture Lab. He wrote the award-winning Sal Capone and has been up since the crack of dawn today. Welcome, Omari. How are you doing? Uh, truthfully, tired, uh, but inspired. So that's ah. good. So what have you, I mean, why do you get up so early then if you're tired? Uh, I wake up every morning at like six o'clock, actually 5.30, but I'm, my alarm goes off at 5.30 and I start my day at six. There's lots to be done. Uh, right now, in particular, uh, on the activism front, you know, we're in a moment in history where movements like Black Lives Matter are at the forefront of everyone's mind, and which is a wonderful thing. But as a request, a lot of artists, Black artists like myself, have been getting many media requests and requests from organizations to do work. And it's my my pleasure and privilege to do so. But it's it's definitely, I've seen it, it, the increase in, in requests go up exponentially. And then, of course, there's, you know, that whole little career thing with artistic work. <laughs> Well, and I'm thank you, first of all, for being here and uh, being open to having this conversation, because I think when I talked to you, I suggested that I felt that you were probably doing this, but I, I do want to talk about the Black Lives Matter, but I also want to talk about storytelling sure. and how we tell stories and and use the language, because I think the language sometimes can get us into really deep doo-doo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's something we need to start being thinking about and how our yep. perceptions are affected by how people use words or pauses or whatever. So as storytellers, we're going to delve into that a bit. But Great. first of all, I'm really curious about um, just some personal questions around how you got into this business and why, and yeah. how you came West from Montreal and why. Yeah. Well, I'll give you the longest version of the story because we're on a podcast. Let's get into it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> So I was, uh, I first had the, the acting bug stoked, I think, when I was cast as, uh, as Joseph in my church's uh, Christmas play. Uh, I was, I think, probably the first Black Joseph the church had had, so I was breaking those diversity boundaries, uh, even back as a child. Um, but I, I actually, when I was born, I had polyps on my vocal cords, so I was one of those kids who had a voice like this when I was really, really young. I had, like, this raspy, deep Oh, voice. wow. <laughs> yeah. And I used to lose my voice all the time. And then I had surgery in the third grade and it cleared up my voice. So I'd, I always had this, this passion and enthusiasm for performing, but the, the instrument wasn't working until I had that surgery. And then it, I felt like it was this, uh, this blessing. And I, it's funny, I remember the elementary school nurse after the surgery said to me, your voice sounds great. You know, you'll probably never be able to be a singer or actor or anything, but you know, it's, there's a market improvement. So. Maybe my, my entire uh, career is a, a vindication for what was said to me by my third grade uh, school nurse. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you had the first role you played was Joseph and you, your church would have assumed that Joseph would have been white mm -hmm. uh, or that Jesus was white, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, when in fact, that may very well was probably not the case given where the, uh, where yeah. the uh, story has been set. So sure. it's interesting that already you were sort of facing this, even at, in grade three, facing, facing this perception that people have about the world. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> well, and, and also what's interesting is there, you know, the director, and I remember to this day is one of my mom's close friends. Her name is Mrs. Morneau. Uh, and she was a white woman who obviously had very progressive politics in her own way. And, you know, my, my parents immigrated from Trinidad and Tobago. And 
in retrospect, we were quite poor back then. You know, I remember uh, there was five of us. I have, I have two sisters, my parents, and we lived in uh, a two, I think it was, a, it might've been a one bedroom. No, I think it was a two bedroom place, all five of us uh, in Cote de Neige in Montreal. And we went to this church uh, in the town of Mount Royal, which the, the socioeconomic class of that church was well above where we were at. And despite this, my mother became friends with members of the congregation. And, and this one woman in particular, Mrs. Morneau, I learned as an adult was actually quite wealthy. They own, the family owns a number of different uh, pharmacies. But of course, when you're a kid, you don't think of social class or things like that, but they used to take us to their cottage and we used to go windsurfing and ride on their boat, like just hanging out with their kids. And it, it, it was pretty in retrospect, amazing to see this wealthy woman of privilege who really didn't didn't ju judge people by things like class or, or race. And, and to this day, like I said, my mother, who since immigrating to Canada with not even a high school diploma has, has gone on to get her master's degree. You know, my parents own their, their place in Montreal. They, they had a, an investment property after that. My father is an accountant. So I've really seen the Canadian dream live out in real time through my parents. Well, when when you came to Montreal, were you French speaking? Was French one one your native is French your first language then? No, I was actually I my sisters and I were born in Montreal in the nineteen seventy late nineteen seventies. I was born in nineteen seventy nine, but my parents were born in Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, see, yes. So I was fluent, or I am uh, fairly. I mean, I'm fluently bilingual, right? Because I we spoke English at home, but I was in French immersion from kindergarten all the way up until I went to college. So I'm I'm. Anglophone, but I'm quite comfortable speaking and reading and listening in French. I'm kind of needed in in Montreal, really. I mean, in Quebec, you really do need to have both languages. I wish I wish the rest of the Canada of Canada needed to have more than one language. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so there's not not even. I mean, we're not even going to get into speaking about all the indigenous languages in the country, but all of the immigrant languages. It's and and yet the majority of the languages are in, uh, people are English speaking. I I thought Canada was a bilingual country growing up in Montreal. And then when I moved to Vancouver, I realized it was like a superpower. I was like, oh, nobody. <laughs> it's just in Quebec that everybody speaks both. Yeah, I, and it wasn't until, I don't know, uh, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who actually, I think, uh, actually ensured that bilingualism was part of the Canadian uh, constitution. Uh, anyway, yeah. that's a whole other subject. <laughs> I was, was going to say on that note, my parents have a lot of love for Trudeau Sr. because he, he was also very big on Canada being a multicultural country and his immigration policies facilitated my parents coming over from Trinidad so well and one of the one of the things this is a really short firehall story because I don't want to get into it but one of the things I think it was 80 he, that multiculturalism was passed there was a big pushback against it but uh, around that time we had started a training program that was open for uh, uh, artists from different diverse cultures it was not uh, that was what was requested it was kind of an employment action program that the government had put in place there were grants then for that kind of thing and yeah. at that point um, I think it was Crossroads Theatre which was do they were doing a wonderful production of Raisin in the Sun mm -hmm. uh, here at the fire hall we had started our training program it got out that it was open for only artists who were from different cultures or indigenous and uh, there was a big kind of protest against it and all of a sudden Firehall started getting all these calls about us threatening our staff because we were actually engaging with people from the other uh, and that wasn't something that Canada did. So yeah. there was quite a pushback against that multicultural uh, introduction in, in a very strange way. But that was the last century. So it's amazing to me that we're still in that place now of that pushback. And it's yeah. incredibly increasing. Well, but, I was going to say, it, it, you, you would hope that given that those were the early days, and what, this would have been what? The 1970s? Uh, that was 1980. I think that uh, I think that passed in 1984 or 86. I can't quite remember, but the the the, the program we were running was in 85. So you, uh, you would think, given those origins in '85, that would be much further along right now, but we seem to have. Uh, although, for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into, you know, Canada is a country founded in colonialism, and it's not entirely surprising that there are still people who hold those attitudes. So. Yeah, no, it's very true. So we're going to have a couple of moments of fun and then we're going to get back into this. But, uh, <laughs> I'm great at parties. I, I can never just relax and have a conversation. It always goes back to... <laughs> No, well, I mean, it's 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 in it's part of your your being. So why wouldn't it be? 
Um, so I wanted you uh, to just give me, I know since you're an early riser, you're wide awake, but uh, can you give me an example of what a true dramatic pause is? Hmm. Like, you want me to demonstrate one? Or you want me to yeah, explain uh, Yeah, I want you to demonstrate one. So let me, I'll preface it with this. I had a great teacher early on in my career named Kate Bly, who she, she was a big proponent of Uta Hagen, uh, you know, re, like to this day, respect for acting is like Bible to me and uh, from, from an acting standpoint. And I remember she really stressed the difference between a stop and a pause. So if any young actors are listening, right, she, she described to me best where a pause to me is a suspension in intention, right? Versus a stop where you just, you set a thought and you're sitting in neutral waiting to, to begin. So to me, an example of a great pause was, uh, or an example of a great pause is, is something where you are investigating a thought and you hold, that, you hold it for reflection so that while you're not speaking, you're still very, very active in your head. So an example in a contemporary context would be like, and that would be an example. <laughs> and I wish we were showing your face on, on this podcast because that was beautiful. But really, truly, I mean, the dramatic pause, uh, and I think Uta Hagen is probably one of the best, fabulous, amazing teachers there ever was in terms of uh, theater. But mm. to, to, to in terms of dramatic pause, one of the things I remember my teachers are sharing with me is that really the words, it's all, all, all the content, all the meaning, all the whatever, um, in the language or in the line often happens within the pauses. And so that's quite often, the story gets told a lot by the pauses. Uh, and I often work with actors as a director, and I'm sure you do, where everybody wants to put pauses in, but they actually are stops. So thanks for sharing that, that well, information. And Pinter, of course, is, you know, the, the cliched example of, of the pause. And I I also, I listened to a great, uh, it's not even a podcast, there's was, was a great video, uh, Michael Caine on acting which as corny as it sounds, it's actually pretty amazing. I learned a lot about film acting from watching Michael Caine. And he said he had a conversation with a director once and he, he was on stage for one of those scenes where he was on stage for like 30 pages without dialogue. And the director asked him what he was doing. And he's like, well, I'm just waiting, I have nothing to say. And the director said, no, your character has a number of fascinating, insightful things to say. You have to figure out why you've chosen not to say them until 30 pages later. <laughs> That's that's fabulous. Well, I think that actually I've heard that that video is a very good video. And I actually really? think Michael Caine is a pretty uh, amazing oh, actor. He's brilliant. But it's just because it was done in like the 80s. It has that sort of like there's no this was in the the pre irony era. Like everything right. that's done now is sort of like tongue in cheek and wait, like yeah. it's a very like, you know, on the nose instructional video. And it's really, really great. Um. And do you have a, a, a line from a show that, like for me, when I've learned lines, I usually forget them right away. That's why I usually go to Shakespeare because some of those are just embedded, even if I don't want them to be. But do you have a line that comes back to you often that actually guides things that you do in your life or that just haunts you? Hmm, that haunts me? Well, it just kind of, it, we wake up and all of a sudden the line's back in your head. And you go, why does that line come back to me? There is actually. So it's interesting. The first professional play I ever did was My Children, My Africa by Athel Fugard. And I played a, a South African character named Tommy Umbekwana. And he has this beautiful monologue and it opens with singing that song at the top of his voice. Young Tommy, what was it? Ah, no, singing that song at the top of his voice with a slit under his arm. Young Tommy was a very eager young scholar was the opening line of that monologue. And it's, it tells this beautiful story of this young South African boy who, who loved school at first. And then the, the pervasive racism that he dealt with in South Africa kind of crushed his spirit and led him more towards being a revolutionary and, and an activist. And I just find that's a profound bit of dialogue and a profound uh, monologue. And it comes back to you because that's kind of what you're doing too, <laughs> in a strange well, way. I mean, it does influence your, it has obviously has influenced your life. I see this is also interesting. I have never seen a separation of art and activism. And that's my early influences, be it be it Athel Fugard or Public Enemy or Rage Against Machine or Spike Lee. All of my early artistic influences were art that had a purpose that was normally working for some social justice cause. So in my own work and generally the work I choose or I'm drawn to, there's a combination of creative and activism. So it's just, I don't, to me, I don't see a difference between the two. Uh, 
I think art, uh, in some people's mind, there's this whole elitist opinion of of, of art. Uh, I think that maybe comes from classical music, but even within classical music, um, there's usually a politic. Um, And certainly in opera and uh, every Broadway show, I always say every show has a political perspective, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And and, uh, personally, I think there are a lot of people that got involved in the arts to show their ego, <laughs> perhaps, yep. um, but also uh, many also myself, I think, got involved in arts because I thought it had the potential to actually uh, lead to change. Yeah. And so whatever you put on stage influences whoever sees it in some way. Uh, I, it, go ahead. I, don't, I can't remember who it was who said it. I want to credit it to, to Angela Davis just because she deserves as much props as you can give, but I, the quote that uh, remaining neutral or silent is a vote in favor of the oppressor. Like this, this idea that like everything is political. And if you're not actively speaking out against the establishment, you are passively endorsing the mainstream. Well, I had a, I had a, a podcast interview with Renai Morisot and we were talking about this very thing, like white, what, what, what we as, um, white um, supporters, allies, co-conspirators, whatever we want to be called. I said, well, what does the community, what should we be doing? What can we do? And I'm not asking you to educate me. I'm asking you to just share. And she said, well, you know, the white line, it's really about the white line mm-hmm. and, and actually standing up and supporting um, in, a, in a way that is meaningful. So mm-hmm. it's something that I've been contemplating a lot during the COVID pandemic um, in terms of what I do responsibly and what uh, my company can do responsibly. Mm-hmm. And someone else was saying that COVID is actually with George Floyd and um, the murder in the States and, and what continues to go on down there with police brutality and the anti-Semitism and anti-Asian uh, sentiment that's going on in Canada, yep. the way Indigenous people are treated. It's sort of like, okay, how do we um, how do we go forward? And has COVID actually released um or ripped off the scab if you will of all of this stuff to remind us that we're 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 nowhere close to where we should be as an equal society well Um, i think anytime there's a global pandemic or some kind of disruption uh it exposes weaknesses or flaws in the system and you know the people marginalized people whether it's socioeconomic or because of sexual orientation or gender or, or ethnicity, be, the most vulnerable are always the ones who suffer most when there's a disruption. So I think things like this global pandemic, they just exacerbate the situation for marginalized people. And you know, a great example, I remember reading something in the New York Times about how Manhattan, the infection rates in Manhattan and, and life for people living in Manhattan versus people living in Harlem or, or Brooklyn were, were quite different because people of a certain socioeconomic bracket who had to continue working, who you know now minimum wage workers got rebranded as frontline workers, they still had to be in close proximity on the subway coming into the city to go to work while people in Manhattan proper who have enough money to live there and own townhouses and brownstones and condos were able to have jobs that allowed them to transition to working from home or, or just, you know, getting a stimulus check and, and sitting back. So the, the rates of infection in America are exponentially higher amongst black people who often fall into the lower socioeconomic bracket, right? And I think, I don't think we've, we've been tracking numbers uh, or demographics of infection in Canada, but I wouldn't be surprised if we, if we did to discover that indigenous people and black people and minorities were, sorry, somebody's, Somebody's in my alley beating something. I don't know what's going on, but, but yeah, it new wouldn't. Kind it of, would, sorry, new kind of music, I guess. Anyway, go. Sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah, it wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me to hear that uh, we have similar demographic rates in Canada. Can I go ask that person? Yes, we can take a stop and then we'll come back. Of course, in perfect Murphy's Law fashion, somebody was knocking down a fence in my back alley. They just decided to wait for till exactly when I was recording a podcast. And they're like, let me just hammer <laughs> down this, this wall. The joys of living in the city, right? 
So that was a perfect example of a dramatic pause that was actually created <laughs> by the outside world and the pressures of living in a city. Uh, anyway, uh, where were we? We were, we were talking about um, the effect of the pandemic on, um, on the marginalized. Yeah, and we're just talking about how it's always the people on the fringes of society who are disproportionately affected when, when things go bad whether it's a natural disaster, uh, a disease, whatever it is. It's, unfortunately, it's always poor people and minorities who get uh, screwed over. Well, and I, I mean, the, the indigenous community, I don't know what happened across the country, but I know a lot of the indigenous community who are living on their lands uh, just basically said, okay, we're closing the doors. We're not allowing people in. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, smartly so, because of course, uh, uh, what happened in Canada with the smallpox blankets and all of those kind of things, which I, I think people believe ended up got trans uh, transferred in the longhouses because they had the blankets there, um, uh, and they went, no, stay away, we don't need you uh, at this point. However, they that lesson from Columbus and Jacques Cartier. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, in many cases, they're still living with um, really bad housing situations and 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 uh, lack of water. But anyway, that's another uh, issue that Canada needs to start addressing quickly. Like, I mean, look, this is something that this is not an original thought, but something that I've reflected on in the, in the states a lot. When you look at the response to the the legal protests that are happening across America, right, with people out in the streets, it is telling and perplexing that every police officer you see is able to get their hands on body armor and advanced technology and weapons so they look like they're in the Terminator or something, like futuristic cops. You know, a friend of mine lives in LA and he said there were tanks rolling through the streets at the height of the curfew. Yet nurses and doctors can't get paper masks and gloves. That's all you need to know about a society, where, where, where governments are prioritizing, when you can get weapons of war and to suppress, uh, to suppress legal protests, but doctors and people who are, who, are, who are tasked with helping the sick in our society can't get basic, basic things that could be mass produced domestically like that in the middle of a pandemic. It's, it's surreal and absurd. And how, how, yeah, how did the priorities get shifted to that uh, militarization of the police force to such a degree that uh, they are armored like that? I mean, I was uh, talking to a, a policeman who's actually in the neighborhood just checking out, actually making sure that people going down the alley, there's a construction thing going on down here. So he was making sure that people weren't in the alley, that didn't need to be in the alley that could get hurt because this, this is a very challenged neighborhood. And there he was in full gear with his gun and the whole kit. And I kind of, my brain went, all right, all you're doing actually is directing traffic. Why do you need all this gear? And how did we get so far away from when the English bobbies only used to carry a stick. So uh, I, well, I think it's interesting that we're into this discussion about defunding police, defunding the police. They're looking at different models for policing. I, and, I also, and I also have to say, because I get flack from this, my best friend is a police officer. I literally read the vows at his wedding. He was a groomsman at my wedding. But it was interesting because when I met him, he was an actor. He wasn't a police officer. He's since joined the police force. And my, my father-in-law was actually the chief, of, the chief of police of a small town in Northern Ontario, about 50,000. So I don't hate police you know, as individuals and I, and I don't hate police. I recognize that the need for police as an institution. And I think when people say defund the police, the conservatives have this like Pavlovian trigger response where they just get all up in arms as if we're talking about the, the abolition of police. And I think if it was rephrased like reallocate funds from police, because every cop I know, they don't want to be taking mental health calls either. They know they're not equipped. They know that they, they don't know how to deal with them. They're unpredictable. I think if we allocate some of the funds that we're using to literally buy tanks into you know, getting more mental health workers or more social workers you know, with, with support that goes with them, who can de-escalate situations so that people who have tools of war don't result to using the tools they have to fix problems, the fatality rate in, in interactions with police and people who deal with mental health would go down dramatically. 
I think you're absolutely right on to something, and I think that's really what the lobby is should be about is reallocation of funding, uh, certainly in the neighborhood of the fire hall. Uh, they have run a number of programs where police and um, healthcare workers have gone out as a team. And those kind of things, I think, seem to be very positive. It's just when the balance gets pushed the other way. I mean, each policeman is indeed an individual and whatever they carry with them goes into their job, unfortunately. And after many altercations, perhaps they are not the right, they should not be being police anymore. They should be moved into oh. something else. And, and I will acknowledge that the police system in Canada and the U.S., they're, they're very different. They are, yeah. The, the way that, the, I mean, one, people don't know this, the amount of time it takes to become a cop in America is shockingly low. The pay is horrific in most uh, places in America. And there's this pipeline, which this is really horrifying, this pipeline between former military and the police in America, where you got people coming back with PTSD and all types of untreated stuff who, who then are on the streets with a gun and a badge policing the public. It's horrifying. Yeah, it's very, very scary. Well, hopefully there will be some change in the future in the U.S. Uh, with the election coming up, but uh, it would be horrifying if there wasn't this this change down there. I I, I don't know. I, I think of uh, Canada gets so often con uh, compared or not compared, considered as uh, a province of the U.S. or a state of the U.S. So there is an assumption that we're the same and we're hopefully not uh, well, and not, will not be. When you look at guns per capita, to me, you could make a pretty clear argument for for disarming police in many communities because it's not like in America where the, the gun death rate and the gun violence rate is off the charts because there's guns everywhere. I, I, I think if you're a cop in the States, you need a gun because the right. likelihood that, that you run into somebody who's armed is very high. But what is the likelihood that someone in uh, a police working in Kitsilano runs into someone who's armed? Hopefully not very often. <laughs> I mean, not as high as if you're in, if you're in Detroit or if you're in, yeah. you know, and I, and I, you know, I, I totally understand the need for, for, you know, law enforcement to protect themselves, but surely there must be in an age where we can have basically these Star Trek conversations via Zoom. Can, can they not invest money into non-lethal forms of like, I don't know, not to be absurd, but tranquilization uh, stuff so that if a, if a mistake is made, you know, in the heat of the moment, it's not so final. Yes, I often wonder why, okay, if you have to shoot, why do you shoot where it's gonna kill somebody? Why don't you shoot the leg? But anyway, well, that's a so, whole other, I'm not a policeman, so. Well, this is some, or woman. some are related to what we're talking about. I can actually answer that. I, in my new play that I'm writing, uh, Black and Blue Matters, that deals explicitly with a police shooting, uh, we talk about this, and my, my friends who are cops tell me this, they're aimed to shoot for center mass because it's the largest, tar largest target on the body. And if you aim for legs, legs can be easily moved. And if you miss, the potential for uh, casualties with the bullets ricocheting off the ground become very, very high. So it's actually quite dangerous, right? I did not know that. Okay, that explains it. I well, I only know this because I've I've asked these questions to my friends and and they've who are cops and they've told me this. So, on one hand, I understand you're you're you know you're aiming for center mass because that's the biggest target and this and that. But if there were a way to have a, a non-lethal option, if we could remove the lethal option and invest in technology that suppresses people without killing them. Because, because what happens in so many cases is police become judge, jury, and executioner. And based on their gut call, in particular in America, black men are being killed because somebody makes a judgment call in the split, in the split second, you know? Right. And, and because there's no sort of filter, I think, sometimes at that moment, I would imagine, on the potential damage i mean i when we if we wanted to get into analyzing that video of george floyd i mean there was no need for him to die it's no. obvious no. Uh, but it happened and why come that comes from i guess uh, uh inherent hate or um dis whatever uh, against this particular man or, or particular man's culture i would have to say well and the, and the thing that that I hope police understand is what's almost as horrific as the man, as this Derek Chauvet murderer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck was the four or five cops who stood around and watched him beg for his, where you go, when you talk about systemic issues, yeah. the lack of humanity in all of those officers 
speaks very poorly about police in America and that department in particular. If none of you had enough humanity and empathy to, to intervene and, and take that person's knee off, like it's terrifying. Yeah, it's very terrifying. I want to get into talking about your new play, but I also want to talk about the first, uh, well, Sal Capone was the first time I became aware of Omari Newton. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and it was a pretty fabulous piece. I saw it at uh, the Roundhouse and it was directed by Diane Roberts, uh, someone who I uh, have a lot of respect and for and, and a few had a few laughs with in a director's class way back when. Um, so talk, tell us about that play because that play, I mean, this is a kind of a big jump, but but that play, you not only told a very important story with it, but you also told it in a very different manner from how, say, a traditional Eurocentric musical might be created. So mm -hmm. please tell, share with us. So um, Sal Capone came about, first of all, it's important to, we, I, Diane and I started working on it in 2008. And, and I, I say this often, it's true. Though I was the writer of that piece, Diane was the dramaturg, she was the director, she's been my mentor since 2004. So I, that play was not have been, would not have been written without Diane and the sequel wouldn't have come about without Diane either. So I just wanna give Diane her, her props for that. Um, so that play came about for two reasons. I was working in Clinton, British Columbia, and I saw on the news a young man named Freddie Villanueva, a black man in Montreal North, was shot and killed by police and he was unarmed. And this was 2008, it predated the Black Lives Matter movement. So this was before Trayvon Martin, before George Brown. And I was so upset about reading the story that some young black man who looked like me had this happen. And I didn't know what to do with this upset. And I, I was just talking to Diane and she mentioned, you know, you should, put these thoughts and feelings into a play. You should write a piece. And I, I'd worked primarily, not, 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 I'd worked exclusively as an actor up until this point. I started off in, on stage in Montreal, was doing stage in Vancouver. And the second part was, I did a season at Bard on the Beach where I played uh, Aaron and Titus Andronicus. And I had such a miserable time for a number of reasons that I've told this story many times. We don't, I mean, we can get into a bit, a bit, but whatever. I had a miserable time playing Aaron at Bard on the Beach and vowed that I would no longer work as an actor in theater. And I stuck to my word for about a decade. I didn't work in Vancouver on stage for 10 years because I had such a miserable time at Bard, but it inspired me to write the type of story that I wanted to see on stage and tell it in a way that I want to see on stage. And because I come from a hip hop and spoken word background and I, and I was weaned on hip hop culture, it was only natural to me to write a play that incorporated elements of, of hip hop into it. And that's why it worked so. And you had, I'm curious, you said you were in Clinton. Were you, what were you doing in Clinton? Well, this is another story that's, that's connected. Also <laughs> and then I'm going to get into talking about Billy Maristy, but, but sure. Clinton, why yeah. Clinton? <laughs> so I was in the Mark Wahlberg feature film Shooter. Uh, I played an extra, and this is a true story. The opening scene of the movie Shooter was Mark Wahlberg's character in classic white savior mode was in a war zone fighting against African militiamen. And there are so few black people in Clinton, British Columbia, that they literally <laughs> put 50 of us on a yellow school bus and bust us to Clinton, British Columbia, where we shot this Mark Wahlberg movie, Shooter. So I was up there with a group of, and, I, and that's probably why the Freddie Villanueva thing hit me so hard, because it was the first time in Vancouver I'd been around that many black people, for starters. And so we're up, we're all staying at this uh, motel that was also the city, the, the town's restaurant, and it was also the liquor store, and it was also the pharmacy. So we just had us in this town, and, and just the experience, like townsfolk asking us if we were a football team, you know, we we had to, to work on, uh, for filming purposes, we had to work on shooting guns, So because most of us never shot a gun before. So this bus of 50 black men pull up in the middle of this super white town of Clinton, and literally we're standing in rows, practicing shooting machine guns. So cars are driving by, freaking out, not knowing what's going on. And that was my experience in, in Clinton, British Columbia. Oh my God. I, well, Clinton's a beautiful little town, but yes, you're right. It's very white. There is an indigenous oh, yeah. population around there, but it's, it's in most small towns, the yep. indigenous population is probably on the edge. Yep. Uh, uh, so that, <laughs> I, I, I can just imagine that having been to Clinton as to how people would have been like freaked out as probably you were by being there with all these guns and and not knowing what's going to happen next frankly it was a pretty seminal experience it was pretty wild <laughs> at the time my like 
my career was in kind of in the tank at that point, right? I was like, I, I, I had been making my, my living doing theater, but I didn't want to act in theater anymore. I was trying to get a foothold into film and TV, but I was basically doing extra work. So I had a lot of time to like think and sit there and reflect on what I wanted to do with my life. And this was the impetus for Sal Capone. I was just like, I can't keep doing extra work in these Hollywood trash white supremacist fantasy movies. And I don't want to be on stage feeling like I'm being exploited by white supremacist institutions and directors. So it was, it was a real crossroad. So that the play is very angry and it's very political. And it was just a lot of different feelings I had dumped on, onto the page. Well, it worked really well. And, and, and uh, can you talk just a little bit about Billy Meristy's character in that piece? Because he seemed to be, uh, well, not necessarily a trickster, but certainly... A... I would say that it definitely came from the, the trickster tradition. It, there was definitely elements of that in there. But um, so Billy Meristy played a character called Mac uh, Shanene. And Billy Morassi's character was uh, an indigenous, a, a transgendered indigenous woman who took on the persona of a black woman. So the, the, there was an affectation to her voice and she worked the streets and she, she was um, just this hybrid of characters who I'd seen in Montreal and in Vancouver. Like people from Vancouver, I don't know if they know this, but the downtown east side doesn't exist anywhere else I've been. I've never, like, the, the, the disparity of wealth, if you start on the western side of, of Hastings Street and you walk from Coal Harbor all the way through to East Van, you go through every possible socioeconomic bracket. It's insane. And then this was the first time I'd seen, unfortunately, the devastation firsthand and how it's affected Indigenous people was when I moved to Vancouver, because in, in Montreal, of course, we have reservations, like we had the Oka crisis famously happened there, but you literally had to cross a bridge to go to the to the reserve in Montreal. So you didn't see that many indigenous people dealing with oppression firsthand. But when I came to Vancouver, just seeing people and being like, this person is clearly struggling, struggling, they're, they're you know, doing drugs right in the middle of the day, nobody's helping them, no one. So that, that character was a, a hybrid of some of the, the, the things I'd seen that Black people are struggling with in Black culture and Indigenous culture and how they became the voice of the oppressed and the voice of the streets. Like they were the personification of the voice of the streets. Well, and, and obviously you observed that there were uh, trans, a lot of trans uh, or two-spirited individuals in this community and they still yeah. are. And how the urban Indigenous population ended up here, they come from all over the province, but also this is where a lot of the fishing camps were way back when, before Vancouver became Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, and that connection to the place is still there for a lot of people. And they're not necessarily all on drugs, but they certainly are low income. Yeah. Um, so yes, you're right. This is the most, one of the most unique communities because there is a community here, uh, which people don't recognize when they drive through or drop in. Mm -hmm. But so you set out to write this play that it's it fairly complex for, for a yeah. first time play, I would say. Um, and how long, how long did that development process take for you? Cause it, well, it took a while for you to get it actually produced because no one was interested or no one thought it was up their cup of tea. Well, it predated Hamilton. It predated yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement. So Canadian theater, even now from 2008 to now has evolved dramatically and Vancouver's community dramatically. So uh, nobody, even though there had been a hip hop theater movement in the States, like there's a full hip hop theater festival in New York, nobody in Canada really knew what hip hop theater was. There was a couple like, you know, there was like some Shakespeare or biblical adaptations into hip hop, but nobody really knew about hip hop theater. So that was tough. Um, so it took, it took five years, but it's not like I was every single day, 40 hours a week, you know, sitting down and working on the play. I was pursuing an acting career at the same time, but it took five years to go from the first draft, which was horrible, to Diane helping craft it into uh, the play that it's become. And can you talk a bit about the difficulty of getting it produced? Yeah. Like how that, because that, that, that's a, that play was a big undertaking. And I, I think, was it Urban Inc. that produced it or was it your own company? I can't no, well, the original incarnation was Urban Inc. Diane Roberts was the artistic director of Urban Inc. Uh, of a very important company, which which frankly opened my eyes to a lot of the realities of what indigenous people in the downtown east side were dealing with because they're located on uh, Canby and Hastings. And, and we did a lot of initiatives where we would, there was, you know, 
I became friends with Rosemary Gershon, who who does brilliant work at Williams Lake and with women in the downtown east side. And so that's where it was developed. And of course, like many theater companies, Urban Inc. didn't have their own venue. So we had to find a partner to get it done. Uh, and we'd always hoped to have it premiere on the East Coast or, or to not to premiere, but to, sh to show on the East Coast and on the West Coast. So it was when Quincy Armour, a dear friend of mine who now is the artistic director of Black Theater Workshop, he read the script and he was really into it and he, um, he agreed to produce it. So the first production happened in Montreal at Black Theater Workshop and then we came to the Roundhouse in Vancouver. Great. Well, I was just going to Th thankfully it did. And thankfully, I mean, Urban Inc. was started uh, by Marie Clements, who is a fabulous playwright, director, creator, uh, yeah. and uh, who we, uh, Firehall premiered her Unnatural and Accidental Women when she was working here as an associate artist. So when Urban Inc. passed over to Diane, I went, okay, this will be really interesting to see what happens next with this dynamic. And I think Diane led that company for five years probably yep. uh, and did some really exciting projects and I understand you're going to be working with her on another one yep. uh, that uh, I'm very interested in hearing more about <laughs> I'm very interested in talking to you we'll, we'll talk off air more about it <laughs> absolutely we currently, we currently <laughs> don't have a Vancouver presenter or Vancouver partner but so Black and Blue Matters is the companion piece to Sal Capone and very quickly Sal Capone dealt with a young black man, a young black queer man who was shot and killed by police. And he was this prodigy DJ of a hip hop group called Sal Capone. And Sal Capone dealt with the aftermath of their DJ being killed, started off protesting. And this was, this is, it's, it's eerie and surreal, the parallels yeah. in the play and what's happening now in the States. But it, this happened in Montreal. Freddie Villanueva's friends went out and were protesting his murder, and the protest quickly turned into riots, as is wont to happen when people's voices aren't being heard, right? So the first play dealt with police brutality from the POV of the youth mourning the loss of their friend. In the original script, there was two other characters who were police officers who were the ones who shot the young man. So there was a, a, a white woman, a white French-Canadian woman, and uh, a black male cop from Haiti in the original production. And we realized that that story was getting muddled. It was unnecessary. We wanted to really focus on the kids. So we took out the police from that play, but it was always my intention to show both sides of this equation and Black and Blue Matters gives me that opportunity where it's a hip hop musical told in the form of, of rhymes, almost like a rap battle. And the audience serves as the jury. So they hear testimony from the police officer and what they saw and why they did what they did. And then you hear testimony from the young man who was shot and it takes place while he's in a comatose state and the police officer is dealing with the depression and trauma of shooting this kid which by the way this is normally what happens i mean we, you have your odd sociopath who they get off on this and they don't care but the psychological effects on white police officers when they are involved in these shootings are normally devastating there's a lot the divorce rate is high alcoholism is high it really in general is a tragedy that messes people up and this doesn't, of course, justify shooting an unarmed kid, but I think it's a fascinating POV that needs to be explored. So, so in the play, both people present their case and kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, in the movie A Christmas Carol, people from their past are summoned in this, the place where the trial takes place, which is called the oppressed people's court, which is like this purgatory state that exists in both of their shared subconscious. So people from their past are conjured, like former classmates of the cop, uh, like black former classmates come mm -hmm. up to speak to him, to his um, mindset. Uh, the mother of the young boy who was shot comes to speak. Uh, the, his, his best friend from Sal Capone, his little sister who's in Sal Capone, she comes to speak. And the audience views all of this testimony and the play has a choose your own adventure element where based on how the jury, which is the audience votes at the end of the trial, there's alternate endings. Right, similar to what uh, Alley Theater and Touchstone did with Inheritance, which was yep. an interesting examination mm -hmm. of uh, cultural, well, rec 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 reconciliation, but also land ownership. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I look forward to uh, hearing more about this piece. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, we have a few more minutes. I know you've got a busy day today. Um, um, so I'm wondering, um, I'd like to talk just a bit about casting. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, and not necessarily for uh, black and blue matters, um, but for uh, casting in general. I know like in the mid eighties, I think it was, and I think this term probably came from the States, but I'm not sure. Uh, when you ca cast, if you were doing a typically Eurocentric uh, British or American play, uh, you and you cast somebody who might be uh, of black heritage or Asian heritage or indigenous heritage in a play in a part that was um, generally played by a white person, it was called color blind casting. Yeah, uh, and then it became non traditional casting, mm -hmm. and and now um, of course. Uh, in Vancouver, we're, we're talking a lot about inclusive casting and ensuring that the casting that's undertaken reflects um, those who are living in that community. Um, so I, I think this gets raised a lot, and it certainly got raised a lot when Firehall started doing the kind of work we were doing uh, about why we would want to do that why we would want to cast a black man as a lawyer. And I remember when we did Stuff Happens and when we did actually Ecstasy of Rita Joe, we had the amazing um, Alvin Saunders in the pieces and people went, well, why is he there? And then when we did uh, Reading Hebron, we had cast him in that piece as well. And uh, someone asked that question at a talk back and thankfully there was a rabbi in the crowd that night and he said, well, what, you don't think uh, black people are Jewish? Plenty there are lots of black people that are Jewish. <laughs> anyway, it was a very interesting discussion. So I guess I kind of want to just get into that because sometimes it can be an, an inclusive action. Sometimes it can be a questioned action and sometimes it should, just shouldn't be done. So I believe in color conscious casting. I think you, uh, the different bodies you put on stage affect your story. And I think not acknowledging that is absurd. I've written an article about this. I went to see a production of Arthur Miller's All My Sons on Broadway. Uh, it took place in 1950s Iowa. And for some inexplicable reason, the director chose to have a, a diverse cast, including an interracial marriage. Nobody in the play acknowledged it. And it, there, it erased the history of slavery. Uh, you know, this was pre-civil rights movement, but it erased the history of the, the pending civil rights movement. It erased the history of colonialism in America. It was absurd. I thought, I thought it was an absurd form of passive racism to pretend that in 1950, Iowa, um, interracial marriage would not be a big deal. So yeah, I think color inclusive casting is important. And I just think depending on where, when and where your story is set, casting different ethnicities in your story will, have a di will land differently. And I think it's up to, to artists to think about this in an intelligent way and integrate it into their story. And do you think, uh, I think there would be uh, people that would say, well, okay, so if uh, this uh, indigenous artist wants to play this role, why can't I play an indigenous art? Why can't I take on an indigenous role? For a few different reasons. One, uh, there are limited opportunities for indigenous artists to begin with. Two, minorities have PhDs in whiteness. We live in colonized societies. We deal with white people all day. We have to understand your customs and cultures to exist. Many white people have the luxury of knowing nothing about our lived experiences. So you're so a white person is unqualified to play an indigenous person in the way that an indigenous person would be able to play a white person after observing them and living amongst them for years. So it's a multi-layered answer. I think that's a very good answer, actually. <laughs> you get really good points for that because I think that that comes up all the time and people sometimes say, well, it's about access. There's never been access before. And I go, well, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's much more about where their story comes from, which is very different from where uh, a traditionally trained white actor who might be able to portray very uh, well um, the same role, but wouldn't have the history. So mm -hmm. I guess what I'm hearing here is that the, where the story comes from, how the story is told is definitely affected by your cultural lived history. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, I think and, so. and some people used to say, well, when the playing field is level, then um, anybody can play anybody. Well, I, look, there's a comedian named Amar, Amar Raman or Raymond, I might be pronouncing it wrong. He's an Australian comedian, but he's South Asian, uh, or he might be Aboriginal. I'm actually not sure what his specific call. He's just a non-white comedian. He right. tells a brilliant stand-up comedy joke, uh, which is about the absurdity of reverse racism. The playing field cannot be leveled unless we invent a time machine and African countries or Arab countries go and colonize Europe. There is no leveling of the playing field. The system has been set up by largely white men 
who, who to this day are the beneficiary, both monetarily, psychologically, of colonialism. And, I, and a very simple example of this, one of the most common ways to transfer wealth is land ownership and transferring land. This idea that like, it was so many years ago, get over it. You know, I, I've said this in interviews before, to this day, my last name, Newton, is the last name of my family's colonizer. Trinidad was a colony of, of England. My mother's last name is Clifton. My father's is Newton. I don't know where in Africa we were originally from. And we, we even to this day in 2020, I bear the last name of my ancestors' colonizer. Right. So there was no leveling of the playing field unless we invent a time machine. Well, and also that happened with a lot of indigenous people. They were given names when they were put into residential school or however, they were assigned names. Same thing when people came in from wherever in the U.S. and into Jewish people, Canada. Jewish people, when they had to flee, it's the oppressed people have, have, yeah, have had everything taken from them, including their identity for a very, very long time. And it's anybody who thinks in terms of when the playing field is leveled, it's, it's absurd. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I've certainly had that said to me several times. Well, will you change if the playing field's level? And go, well, I, I don't think so, because theater needs to be telling the stories that are relevant today, and we need to be looking at stories beyond the traditional stories that we've been hearing for years. It, it, so. would, it would be like a man telling a woman, well, once patriarchy has passed, then we're going to be like, okay, well, when is that? <laughs> what, how are we going <laughs> to... How? <laughs> I long for the day. I grew up with three brothers, so I'm, right. I'm very used to being in a patriarchal society in my house when I grew up. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Um, oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to say, you know, we all have privilege in, in different ways, right? And I, I'm definitely more woke to my male privilege and to issues of patriarchy since my wife, who's a very proud and vocal feminist, has, has you know, since our marriage has, my wife also is a playwright, Amy Lavoie, as you know. So my, yes. wife, my wife calls me out all the time and has schooled me over the years on the ways in which I perpetuate misogyny and patriarchy. So I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, I'm so woke and, and holier than me, but I just think if all of us recognize our privilege in different areas and work on understanding other people's struggle, we'll advance all of this as a society. Can you talk just a bit, and we're going to wrap this up really soon, about um, the shipment and... Uh, because that playwright is a, a Korean American yeah. writing a play about um, black uh, stereotypes, mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm curious. Uh, I mean, I think this woman is a very woke woman, mm -hmm. and obviously wrote the play for a very real reason. Having been in LA, I guess when when the uh, riots were going on and seeing that happen to her Korean her Korean community, mm -hmm. seeing how that affected it. So I'm curious about how you feel about. Uh, writer's voice and writers uh, uh, writing about things that people might not think they know anything about. Look, I, I think I, I'm not a believer in this thing where you have to be the exact thing to write the thing. I think that there are women who write brilliant male characters. There are, it's a much rarer exception, but there are men who can write William, women uh, brilliantly. And I think people of color who understand what it is to be othered and to be oppressed have a lens into the Black experience. Now, I know that Youngjin Lee uh, consulted and developed the play with a number of Black actors. So she, she um, worked with that community to help amplify their story. But I just think as long as, if you're exploring another culture, it has to be done uh, respectfully and thoroughly. And I'll, <laughs> I won't name names, but relevance to our community and something that, that went on recently, what you cannot do is be a white person who collaborates with indigenous people to tell indigenous stories and then post videos that are debunking white supremacy, which what's been wild to me about 2020 is the amount of people I thought were allies exposing themselves on social media with some of the dumb shit they post. I, like, if you wanna be an ally, you gotta be in for the long haul. You gotta humble yourself and see things from the perspective of people of color. Well said. Well said. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm familiar with that. We won't go into that story at all, but uh, I, I was quite dismayed, of course, as we all were. Um, it's, just, uh, it's just arrogance and frankly speaks to a systemic problem in Canada because he's not the first. I remember Joseph Boyden went through a whole thing, but it's just like, if you're going to profit off of telling the stories of oppressed peoples, have the empathy and humility to not turn around after you've gotten the money and the critical acclaim and try to debunk white supremacy, thus exposing that you haven't been paying attention to a conversation that's been happening in Vancouver for decades. It's, it is, I'm flabbergasted by that entire episode and I'm being very gracious not naming names right now. 
Well, I think, I mean, that that's an example of us, and I'm going to take uh, this on as well, um, of people not actually listening or being aware of what's going on. I'm amazed at the lack of knowledge of the history uh, that has happened in Vancouver in terms of trying to in, in, encourage inclusiveness and in trying to bring um, uh, everybody into the fold of our community of theatre creators. So, uh, a lot gets for, forgotten and history seems to forget itself and then it comes back to it. And every hopefully every time we circle around, we get a little more balanced or wholesome in how we approach this work. But I'm finding that I'm uh, constantly learning. And I remember when I, I made the statement that I wanted Fire Hall to have a Canadian theatre company <laughs> that represented all of Canada. It was a pretty naive statement because I had no idea who I, what I was talking about other than I wanted to have everybody that wanted to be on stage and on stage. But mm-hmm. since then I've had many, I've made many mistakes and I hope I'll continue to make them because I seem to learn from them. That seems to be the easiest way to learn. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I am, I, I, as you said, I, I'm so surprised that some of these things continue to happen. Um, but that's how some people need to learn. Um, yeah. uh, anyway, uh, I thought uh, to wrap this up, I was going to ask you, well, I'll ask you this and if you want to answer it, <laughs> great. Um, where do we go from here as as creators and leaders in the performing arts? I mean, I see you as a leader in the performing arts. Um, Thank you. I'm humbled to hear that. I... Well, you are. You're you're an advocate for what I believe is right action within the arts. So that puts you into a leadership role. You know, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you know what I joke about, and I but I am also being serious. I'm just indifferent to my career when the when like in in the face of what in, of importance between social justice issues or my career i'm completely indifferent to my career and i have been since about 2008 and i think that's very freeing and i think like to me i'll, I'll like I, there's a lot of things i love i love teaching you know I, i'm passionate about social justice where if i ever get canceled by the artistic community i will walk away I won't, i'll never look back and i think that gives you a lot of freedom to be to be honest and um i think where do we go from here you know when social justice in issues stop trending, whether it's the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter, just make sure you're still there and you weren't doing it for clout. Make sure that right. when things are no longer cool and there's not a Facebook filter to show your solidarity, you're still, if you have means, donating to, to causes that support anti-racism work, you're still reading books, you're still reading, you know, white fragility or, or why I'm no longer talking to black people, uh, to, to white people about race or how to be anti-racist. Uh, just make sure you are investing in self de- the self-determination of oppressed people when the cameras are off. That's what has to happen next, is that it becomes part of who you are and not just cloud chasing. Thank you. Now, this could be a fun question. Mm-hmm. If you could do anything artistically that you wanted and money was not an issue, what would you do? I mean, truthfully, I would start a trust and get and collect donations so that uh, interest the interest from this trust, which grows every year, could be filtered back into uh, marginalized arts communities. I would buy a theater and own a building connected to a trust, so that so that voices that historically are not represented could have a stage where their work can be told and can be can be showed without having to worry about getting you know getting those grants again or not selling tickets or I would, you know, I would just try to amplify voices because what they're saying is important and not make art a for-profit venture because that's when I find it gets diluted. Well, and I think historically in Canada, certainly in British Columbia, um, the effect of having to have a strong box office on everything has had a huge effect on what gets up, what, what sometimes people choose to put up on stage. And right now with the shutdown and the possibility of only having 50 people in a space together, uh, looks like how we'll be going forward in the 2020-2021 season, we're having to shift our priorities to consider, okay, well, maybe box office is not always going to be the answer here. Maybe it's more about a, a more of an in-depth relationship so that we can actually build, um, I, I guess, build forward on um, meaningful exchanges through smaller exchanges. I don't know if that's what it's going to be, but I kind of imagine that maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, we're going to wrap this up, and I want to thank you very much for being here. Um, a, a teacher of mine once told me that if I wanted to be in the theater, um, uh, that all artists should be at least 10 years ahead of society. 
uh, in their thinking and looking to the, because we should be the leaders of what people do. So I think um, you are doing that. <laughs> I mean, you were doing that with Sal Capone. You were 10 years ahead of what anybody else was doing. I'm, I'm well, more than that, actually, in a way, because you were actually taking on uh, a new style of, of work. Yeah. You, you took on doing a new style of work. You took on a subject that no one was wanting or even considering talking about in Canada. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think you, <laughs> that's also why I think you're a leader in, in, in our, our artistic community. Um, so 10 years from now, where will we be? So that's, I'm, that's very humbling that you said that. It's very flattering, but I'll, I'll offer that, you know, as a fan of hip hop music and hip hop culture and looking to my heroes like Public Enemy and Chuck D or, or, or Spike Lee, I don't think I was that far ahead. I, I think that, I think that America in a lot of ways when it comes to race is 20 years ahead of Canada. And I think I was just echoing the aesthetic and the values of my heroes who largely were American and Canada for whatever reason wasn't interested back then. So, I mean, to me, I think if people want to look to the future, just look to the youth of, of Canada and America and, and what they're doing right now. You know, look at look at direct action, look at the way that they're, they're protesting, look at things like crowdsourcing, uh, how they're, or, or even, even all these social justice movements like uh, Me Too and Black Lives Matter couldn't have existed, have existed pre-social media. And I think the internet has given us a way to connect in ways and gather and organize in ways that we couldn't have before. So whatever the future of theater is, I think it'll be something where time zones are irrelevant, geographic boundaries are irrelevant. I don't know, maybe it's like, we all, you know, and this is, again, this isn't even for, I'm stealing an idea from, from Star Trek. Maybe think yeah. this in a holodeck where you can have an actor in China, an actor in Mexico, an actor in, in Brazil, all doing a play and it's filtered through live translators. So, or maybe there, or maybe there's a universal language that, that, you know, that everybody speaks and there's a, the monetary system becomes unified and we have one currency and we have one, I, I don't know. Esperanto will be back. <laughs> Esperanto, the, the, the language that we were all going to learn so that we could also all converse to each other. No, that's a good good thinking. But but I think when I was saying the 10 years, and, and I appreciate that we're behind in terms of cultural awareness, in, yeah. or, uh, uh, but I actually don't think any theater company across the country was looking at creating work the way you created that piece. Now, yes, that might be a comment on that we're all 10 years or 20 years behind as opposed to 10 years ahead, but the goal should be that I would think that we're looking to the future all the time and bringing our audiences or our artists with us, I would hope. Yeah, I, I think as long as people recognize that their community, their extended community is not being represented, there will be people Think forward thinking of ways to get their people into theaters and to get their stories on stage. And that's all, that's all Sal Capone was. I was like, how come there's no stories about young black kids who love hip hop told using hip hop in Canada? I will write that story because that's what I want to go see. So I think- And did you, did you get a huge audience for that? Was that show, I mean, when it, I was there, it was packed. It did very well, so much so that it was remounted three times. Uh, we we had three different uh, runs of the show, and I said, I I my hope is, it it sees more life now that unfortunately what's happening in the states right now making the play. I mean, this this play is still never played in Toronto. It's never opened in Toronto. It's never been in Halifax. It's never been in Winnipeg. There are a number of of major cities where the play is relevant that it has not happened yet, uh, and it's done well. Look, we did we did well at the National Arts Center in Ottawa of all places. Right. So, so I think uh, hopefully there's more life for the show and. Um, did it bring people that don't traditionally go to the theater? Every single time. Yeah. In the yeah. same way the shipment did. The shipment yeah. sold out the entire run of the coach to the point where we added shows. We, we had, and I've never been involved in a show like this before. The shipment sold so well that we had shows where we did an eight o'clock show. And because the show was only an hour, we took a half an hour break. And then we did the 10 o'clock show in one evening. And both shows sold out immediately. And the, the audiences that were going to the Colch are not the traditional audiences, obviously, that you would see going to the arts club. And this is kind of the work I'm doing at the arts club now is kind of trying to get them hip to this, that like you're not tapping into massive demographics in your city 
because of the programming you have and, the, and your lack of community outreach. There are people who are hungry for live, I mean, this is pre-COVID obviously, now it's a whole different ballgame, but yeah. there are people who are hungry to see themselves on stage. And if you give them a chance to go support it, they will. You just have to build the work and also engage the communities. You can't, you can't do a quote unquote black show and then do the same marketing that you do for Beauty and the Beast. Because the right. people going to Beauty and the Beast aren't the people going to the shipment. And, and well, the, the people that came to the shipment here were also a, a, a new audience. Yes. Uh, and and uh, when we did, uh, way back when, when we did the Colored Museum with Alvin and Dennis Simpson and yes. Candace Churchill and Lorena Gale and who else? I'm missing someone. <laughs> Lavina Fox. Yep. It was a different audience that came. And that was like 20 years ago. Of course. And, and, and I feel that that's what we need to be doing. It's like opening our stages, trying to figure out a way to open our stages so that everybody feels welcome. Exactly. But you're right. COVID's getting in the way. Yeah. <laughs> we need to find that vaccine. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, or, or, or change how we do things. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap this up? No, just just thank you for for you know amplifying my voice and for for bringing me on and for the support that you've had for my my career. You know, it was really we were really excited to do a show at the at the shipment fire hall afterwards and and I just hope that if young creators of color are listening, they're inspired to go and tell their stories and that just know that the audience is is out there. If you build it, well, they will come. They will come. Yeah. And I, as uh, someone said to me again, very early in my career, if you don't ask, you don't get. So don't be afraid to ask, I think is also a good message. Exactly. And if, and if people aren't listening, well, maybe that's their problem, not yours. Yep. All right. Thanks very much, Omari. Have a great day and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Donna. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Art Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. We'd like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, BC Gaming Commission and the City of Vancouver, as well as our season sponsors, the Georgia Strait and East Van Graphics, and especially our many generous individual donors. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees, or its supporting bodies.